Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Money Making Conversations. It's the show that shares the secrets of success experienced firsthand by marketing and branding expert Rashawn McDonald. I will know. He's given me advice on many occasions, and in case you didn't notice, I'm not broke. You know he'll be interviewing celebrities, CEOs, entrepreneurs, and industry decision makers. It's what he likes to do. It's what he likes to share. Now it's time to hear from my man, Rashawn McDonald. Money Making Conversations. Here we go. Welcome to Money Making Conversation Masterclass. I'm your host, Rashawn McDonald. I recognize that we all have different definitions of success. For you, it may be the size of your paycheck. Mine is helping people and inspiring them to accomplish their goals and live their very best life. It's time to stop reading other people's success stories. I tell it, I tell it every episode and start writing your own. People always talk about purpose and gifts. If you have a gift or a purpose, lead with your gift. And don't let your friends, family, or coworkers stop you from planning or living your dream. As always, I'm excited my about my guests on Money Making Conversation Masterclass. And today, I'm even more excited. When you sit down and watch a guy do things that you go, I think I can do that. Not really, not really. His name is Adam Richmond. He is. He made his name on TV as the star of Man Vs. Feud. I can't tell you how many episodes I've seen of this guy. He was willing to eat large amounts of food in short periods of time, taking on challenges from various restaurants across the country. To me, it was the world. And Adam is now promoting his new series, Adam Eats the 80s. Like, if you have video, I got the big old box right here. They sit down here for marketing, and I got all the little goodies that they put in that box. The popular series, and also another popular series that he hosts on the History Channel called The Food That Built America, which is really, really a cool show. It's also airing in season three. Both shows, that, like I said earlier, air on Sunday nights on the History Channel. Now, let's get back to the 80s. That was a decade, you know, when food was all about the flavor and this 10 episodes series follows Richmond as he digs into the most nostalgic and you say nostalgic because some of this food is out today and I'm still eating it so we're going to talk about that so I may be, I may be a bit of nostalgic and still just don't want to let go just don't want to let go <laughs> but uh, his viewers will relive the decade by joining Richmond on a journey back to where these brands all began that's the really cool part about it we're going to talk about that during the interview learn about the amazing secrets never revealed and watch as Richmond tries versions of products that will never enter Intended for public use. Please welcome to Money Making Conversation Masterclass, the host of two History Channel shows, my man Adam Richmond. How you doing, Adam? Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. And I'll tell you some, Adam. Uh, I'm just go back to a little history. Uh, uh, just becoming a fan of yours, and uh, you know, as, as a younger guy, you know, people always say, "Man, you can eat. You can eat. You can eat." <laughs> okay. Now, now, knowing you, I can't eat. Okay, I can't eat. I, 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 I consume a nice amount of food. <laughs> but I will tell you this. Uh, I, I will tell you this. I don't care how much money I make. I still go to buffets. Man. I go to Corral. I still roll up in there, man, and, and chow down. So I enjoy variety. And I still I understand the value of a great steakhouse. But boy, I would go by a buffet and still enjoy that. What got you into the business, Adam? Well, uh, yeah, I don't eat like that normally. I don't think I'd still be here if I did. Um, I... 
language, um, the story of food, the shared communication right. through food and stuff like this, but it was always a hobby, an avocation. And um, I was told, like, I guess many Jews <laughs> from the Northeast are told, like, you're going to become a doctor. Right. And right. Uh, that was the path I was on. And then um, slowly became a little disenchanted with science, fell more in love with languages. I speak French. I speak Hebrew, speak some Japanese. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, I like, began acting just on my own. Uh, I started, uh, came out of Emory University in Atlanta. Right. I worked for the Olympics in 96. And then Atlanta is a great town for a non-union actor to start. At least it was in the mid-90s. Mm-hmm. And so food became a way to support my acting habits. So working at restaurants, working in kitchens. And um, you end up with two educations simultaneous, an arts right. education <laughs> and a culinary one. And... Uh, Flashing very far forward, I came out of Yale Drama School because um, I decided that if I got a master's from a good school, at very least I could teach in right. the arts at the university level and make at least a six-figure income and provide for a family and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mom would get the sticker for the back of her car that said <laughs> Yale. She'd get the Yale mom coffee mug. I'd be straight. Right, <laughs> so, right. Uh, Basically, what ended up happening was um, I came out of Yale. I was blessed to be signed with agents, started working. And again, the the food stuff sort of augmented and supported all the acting stuff. And um, I read three books in very short succession that I personally, um, I consider to be the linchpins of me achieving a modicum of success. And I don't get any kind of kickback. I want to make that clear. These are just genuine books I read that helped me. Um, I read a book called The Way of the Peaceful Warrior. And then I read The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. And then I read a book called um, uh, The Renaissance Soul by Margaret Lobenstein, uh, Life Design for People. Uh, It's it's called Life Design for People with Too Many Passions to Pick Just One. And um, in that book, there was one particular exercise called the reverse flow chart where you sort of took your passions and your abilities and it helped you kind of ascertain what your career could and should be. Mm -hmm. And I knew I had this entertainment skill set and, you know, knowledge base and work experience resume. And then I had a culinary one. Right. And I knew that it was the merging of the two that was the thing. And then I just launched myself at every opportunity. An opportunity uh, came my way um, through one of the agents that I signed with (laughs) out of graduate school. And I launched myself at it like a juggernaut. Like I just was like, if this is what you want and this is the opportunity, you know, I had studied international studies, so I knew travel was a thing. I had gotten formal training as a sushi chef, so wow. I knew that was a thing. And mm-hmm. I had a master's from Yale Drama, so I knew performance was my thing. So I needed to find a way to fuse travel, food, and performance. And uh, when the opportunity came, you just have to come at it, no let up. You just have to put everything you have into those opportunities. And that's that's kind of what I did. I auditioned. So, so on man versus food, did you have to like eat food from them? Did they have a reputation as <laughs> yeah. an eater? How did that, that was part of the audition. Believe really? it or not, there was no, <laughs> there was no five pound burrito audition. But, but the first audition actually, you did have to bring some food, but they wanted to see how you could describe flavor. Right. And how you made it look when you ate. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, then there were subsequent auditions, interviews, they check your references. And then the final screen test was at Katz's Deli. And it was on Valentine's Day of 2008. Uh-huh. And uh, it was me and the final six dudes. And I had wow. a very good mentor uh, when I worked at Actors Theater of Louisville, Kentucky. John Jory said, an audition is not some kind of new age experience. It's competition. A competition, right? You're there to get a job, they're there to get a job, and whether or not you pay your bills in a meaningful manner for the next however long depends upon how well you fare in this competition. So you can make nice, nice with everybody else, but you're there to lock it down and get a damn job. So mm-hmm. 
uh, yeah, I auditioned. And at that final screen test, I had to eat a gigantic double Reuben wow. <laughs> fries. And uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, this, the sandwiches at Katz's Deli are not cheap, and I was pretty broke. And so being able to get a, a Katz's sandwich for free was pretty dope. That was like, yeah, With those dude. fries. Those fries it's are great. Little, I've been there. That's an awesome place. So man. good. So good, yes. those fries. You know, the, the beauty of uh, you as a, as a talent, because that explains now how the, the ending of man versus food. Because you always had those little fake press conferences and you had the shades <laughs> on. And, I, and I'm going to tell you something, man, that, that made me a fan of yours because you could, Thank you know, you had a sense of humor. You know, you didn't take it for real, but it was that, it was that personality to the next level. And you Thank always you. had a nice, charming smile. And you did. They, they, let's tell you, they hired the right person. Because all Thank those things, when you ate, it was a journey. When you talk to people, you would look comfortable. You looked like a regular guy. In the end, you, it was a spoof. Having people act like ask you questions and things like that. So really, that was a persona that you built out, and you became this connoisseur, this star of uh, consuming food. But really, you was an entertainer to me, you know, because I, I could see you being a game show host easily, and I'm pretty sure you've done that in your lifetime. But the thing uh, about it now, but right now, in, you're in this food industry. And then so a uh, little background on me is that when I when I heard about the show, you know, Adam Eats the 80s, in 1986, I was working for IBM, and I had my math degree. Everybody thought I was going to stay at IBM, but I wanted to pursue a career as a stand-up comedian. And so I left IBM, and so shocked everybody to pursue a career as a stand-up comedian. Well, I was a road comedian. So when you start talking about at the 80s, I was out there consuming Roy Rogers. I was there, brother. I was there. You know, so so this this is a fun journey for me. And just interviewing you is kind of like, wow, I did that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. But when, when I saw Roy Rogers, that really hit home for me. So <laughs> just, just talk about the, being involved in this series. You know, you got the series about the, the food that built America. But to talk about a little about this show, and I'm going to throw in my little comments here and there because I kind of like experienced this because I was on the road in the 80s and in the 90s <laughs> and all it. that good stuff. I love it. Yeah, Roy Rogers owned the 95 Carter for sure. That's <laughs> That yes. was their that was their domain for sure. Well, so the the two shows are so fascinating because they sort of complement each other. Yes, they do. Um, and so, Food That Built America is one of the most inspiring ones for me personally. And I'm not saying that because I'm in it or been mm -hmm. in it. Mm -hmm. um, these men and women bet on themselves, bet on themselves when the world bet against them, yes. when common sense bet against them. And I think there's a lesson in that, but also. Uh, Bill Maher once said, we live in a guitar hero culture where everybody wants to play the solo, but nobody wants to learn the chords. <laughs> yes. And I think that uh, these are people that spent time in the trenches and you don't realize how much sweat equity, you know, people hear about the success, but they don't really pay attention to what it took to, to get there. And um, I think that that's, that's the coolest part. And so for me, the other aspect is I love those little bits of nickel knowledge right? where you uh, know that little factoid about that cookie or that symbol or that company, and it's something interesting. So to look at the new Wendy's logo and see the word mom hidden in the ruffles of Wendy's shirt <laughs> because they want to evoke mom's home cooking right? or the fact that um, – the Oreo cookie uh, came after the Hydrox, and the symbol on that cookie actually comes from this medieval guild symbol. Yes. Or even the fact that uh, Wally Amos, a famous Amos, was an agent at William Morris, discovered Simon and Garfunkel, yes. and got one of the first loans to start his business from Marvin Gaye. Right. All those cool little facts... I just think yeah, you get a deeper appreciation of the culinary world around us. It's beautifully shot. And uh, whether it's this season, whether it's beer, whether it's bread, whether it's sweets, whether it's um, uh, casual dining, uh, I think that there is something for everyone. There is something that will connect with everyone, male entrepreneurs, female, black, white, Asian. Right, I think right. that it's remarkable. We'll be right back with more Money-Making Conversations Masterclass with Rashawn McDonald.
Now let's return to Money Making Conversations Masterclass with Rashawn McDonald. You know, I'm a fan of like those Ripley Believe It or Nots. And this is kind of like that, but for food, you know, because you don't believe that this actually happened this way. Like you was talking about uh, uh, Famous Amos. And like uh, several years ago, he had contacted, these people contacted me about doing a documentary. And and so, like I said, the whole Marvin Gaye, he told me that whole story and the fact that, you know, his cookies don't look like cookies. They like really like, like a, a quarter of a cookie, and he said that was the it's whole. Like a ball, rim. yeah. Right, like a little. You know, it's like you know, if you the way we consume cookies nowadays, his, his almost look like chips. And the fact that he was able to pull that off, he was talking about going from car to car. The whole backstory, like you said, is really compelling because you go as an entrepreneur. There was before social media. There was before the internet. These are just people sometimes going from you know, store to store or person to person to to, to get their word out. And then the brand just took off. Of all those stories, because there's a lot, it's, it's the third season. What's the most compelling? Is it the individual or is the product that they That's actually come up with? That's a question. I think it's the effort of the individual. I think you have to have a product that you believe in. Right. And that goes without saying. And I've, I'm very impressed by... When you look at everyone from Campbell's Soup to the lady that founded Pepperidge Farm, right. that there was an uncompromising level of standards that mm-hmm. um, both inspires me and makes me feel a little bit bad for cutting <laughs> corners sometimes. I'll be honest with you. But um, I think that every single – it's like what's that old line uh, from the old old song? They all laughed at Christopher Columbus. Right. But I feel that this is very much the case. So I feel that it's the individual. I feel that um, hard work and determination alone are omnipotent, as it seems. And, and I'll say, you know, because that's the thing, right? Mm-hmm. Wally Amos had an original cookie, a good cookie, a great personality – but by his own admission, a businessman, he was none. And he scaled up uh, devoid of a business plan to match that scale. Decisions were made. Fiscal decisions were made um, that were ill-advised, you know, to be in a difficult location at a walking mall in Arizona with no air conditioning. Like, mm-hmm. it's just poor forethought. And, you know, you have an entrepreneur and let's also be honest, an African-American entrepreneur in the 80s yes. who, who sadly can now no longer even use his own face and name on a product he Absolutely. created with his Absolutely. aunt as a child. Mm-hmm. And that's profoundly tragic. But uh, there's a playwright named Stephen Dietz, and he wrote a, uh, an essay called An Audience Manifesto. And he said, if the artist trips, we know to jump. If the mm-hmm. artist hits their head, we know to duck. Right. And I think that that's where Wally Amos is worth his weight in gold, is that he is such a warm, wonderful, zen type of individual that despite the slings and arrows, I mean, my God, who would think Wally Amos could go on Shark Tank and not get a deal? Right. And that happened. And yet um, he's very forthcoming. Because, you know, he got that deal with, I believe it was Bloomingdale's, and he was in all these stores and didn't have a production field. He couldn't scale to meet the demand. Absolutely. And then the flip side, you know, we juxtaposed this in Food That Built America, is Debbie Field. And we could also acknowledge that the 80s, and I say this as, you know, the son (laughs) of a very strong stepmom and mom who hit their head on that glass ceiling several times, is straight up, like, for women as entrepreneurs in the 80s, it was not a warm, welcoming time. And mm-hmm. uh, Debbie Field, I think, if I'm not mistaken, she had something like a 21% interest rate on her first loan. And she said it was the best money she could ever get because it was the only money she could right. get. Mm-hmm. Her husband leveraged his house. But Debbie Field kept it small till it was a proven concept. She actually walked the streets of Palo Alto. She wasn't selling as much as she felt she could. And, you know, when I said about betting on yourself, someone made a really harsh comment to her at a dinner party saying how she had this stupid pipe dream. She was a beautiful woman, still is, but a beautiful woman. And so they they thought she was just this pretty housewife. Mm -hmm. And she locked up the shop, took samples on a tray, pounded the pavement, built a groundswell, built a demand, 
And her husband was, at the time in the 80s, they called it an economic futurist. What we call today is <laughs> IT. He, um, he, he realized that she could exert quality control, maintain proprietary um, recipes, mm -hmm. um, track you know, losses and right. gains and that's whatever awesome. through a computer. And it changed the game. And I feel that's why I talk about the individual. They both had great cookies. One of them had a better business plan. Absolutely. Olympian Subway had great, both had decent sandwiches. Subway used scientific method and blew them off the map. Absolutely. You know, I mean, the, the fun part about the, the, the 80s show, you know, because yes, like sir. I said, I was on the road out there doing my thing. And even when I go in the airport, I, you know, I say, Annie Ann, you know, I will stop and give me that lemonade. I, that's what I do. I get a, I get a plain one and I give me a, 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 a lemonade. And, brother, I am happy. I'm walking. I'm sitting <laughs> I take it on the plane. I don't care from first class. I got my Annie, my Annie Ann's in there. And I'm excited. Same thing with Cinnabons when they came out the minis. But we all started with the Cinnabons and then the Mr. T's. It, 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 was just, it was just a flood of just stuff coming to me. Go, oh, yeah, I forgot about that, Mr. T. <laughs> oh, yeah, and then, and then, I, then they said this package about the bubble gum that you chew at one time. All the sweet goes away. Oh, it was, yeah. just, it was just a fun stuff. But the part that really got to me that when I was doing a background on this was the fact that I didn't know that the McDonald's flies were, were, were prepared a different way. And then, they, and then they changed the syrup on the Coke. Talk about that type of information that you're getting out of that show that, right, there's a lot of aha moments in that. Or, oh, I didn't know that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yes. So, moving to the other show, Adam Eats the 80s, we look at this incredibly dynamic, energetic, wild, wildly innovative decade through the prism of food. Right. And like you said, <laughs> we will basically go to the origin story for these brands that came out in the 80s and became national and global icons like Cinnabon and Auntie Anne's you know, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and then look at things that appeared in the eighties and maybe disappeared. <laughs> so, um, Domino's you know, breakfast just, pizza. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. And obviously because, you know, you're an incredibly, you know, brilliant man with a head for numbers. You understand that, um, you know, when Reagan switched to supply side economics, mm -hmm. Reaganomics floods mm -hmm. the economy with money until the recessions in the nineties and uh and then everyone wears flannel and gets tribal tattoos. But until then, <laughs> it was big shoulder pads, big hair, J ones, you know, Bo Jackson cross traders. Right, right. In the eighties was unlike today, you didn't necessarily have to have nutritional info on your food. You did not have to have calories at fast food restaurants. There was no real concentration uh, unless it was medically ordained or religiously specified that you needed to be vegan, vegetarian, paleo, keto, whole 30, 5 2, mm -hmm. you know, all these other Atkins, not, not a thing. Diet culture emerged in the 80s, but right. it was fad, fad, fad. It was Jane Fonda's workout, the grapefruit mm -hmm. diet, and the Beverly Hills. Oh, diet. you bring it back uh, so many. Because I, I was a Jane Fonda. I had, to, I, did, I, had to, I had the VHS tapes and the beta. Hey, I'm just telling you. My, step, my stepmom, when I was a little chubby kid, my stepmom, no leg warmers, though, because. You know that's child abuse. I'm I, I, I just gonna tell you, I because I I was I, I had the leg warmers because I, I I was a I was an instructor. I'm, Adam, you're talking to the worst guy in the world here. I, I, I had love to... it. You probably look good in there. <laughs> I would have looked. I would have. I would have looked like a, a little decorated hippo. And then then the other thing is, if you recall, there was that show for broadcast TV, uh, right. Richard Simmons. Yes, who my man. Had healthy eating. Yes. There was a guy mm -hmm. on uh, Captain Kangaroo and. Other shows called Slim Goodbody, who would wear a suit where you could see yes, your organs yes, and stuff. Yes. And so there was this, this effort because by the 80s, people were watching roughly eight hours of television a day. Um, you had a whole generation of latchkey kids as two-parent families, two-parent working families became the norm. Women had room in the workplace that they never did before. Um, there was a one-third increase of white-collar workers, so mm -hmm. you had parents gone. Plus, you had the invention of the microwave, yes. which allows children the ability to cook, parents to prepare meals incredibly quickly, mm -hmm. gives companies a new avenue for revenue, allows uh, a whole other market for leftovers and home delivery because it doesn't take a whole production to reheat something or remake mm -hmm. something or mm -hmm. reconstitute something. 
And, um, you know, and then with all the fluctuating economic stuff, there was a, a new pivot. So bringing it to what you said about Coca-Cola and uh, McDonald's French fries. So I mean, this is so cool because we went to this food lab uh, called Matson Labs in Northern California, just south of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's relatively close to San Jose. And it's um, just spectacular, quite frankly. I mean, these guys have developed everything from like the Frappuccino to (laughs) some of the nut milks you've seen. But Mm. it's a food lab. These are true Mm. food scientists. And what happened was in the 80s, there was a millionaire who had had a heart attack and his doctors cautioned him about fast food. He spent his money on this crusade to healthify fast food. Mm. And one of the things they talked about was how McDonald's would fry their French fries in beef tallow, which is solidified beef fat. And it's still done in England. If you've ever had a roast dinner anywhere at a pub or at a restaurant in England, uh, they use duck fat. Um, every mm-hmm. gastro pub and mm-hmm. their mama that serves Brussels sprouts and mm-hmm. pate and whatever, they do a, a, a duck fat fry. So frying in suet uh, or tallow is very, very common. But it's way more saturated fat. Remember, if any animal product has cholesterol, any plant product doesn't. So you could eat a pound of vegan cheese. You may have, you know, taken in quite a bit of fat, but you will have taken in no cholesterol. And um, basically, he started this crusade. And strangely enough, all the restaurants, both McDonald's and Burger King, pivoted on the same day. Uh, away from beef tallow and right. began frying in a beef-flavored vegetable oil. Um, the other thing is, as you mentioned, Coca-Cola. Now, being uh, a former Atlanta <laughs> boy myself and having gone to Emory, my father may rest in peace with my pop right here. Uh-huh. Uh, I'll never forget, um, I was down to, I was deciding between three schools. I was deciding between University of Chicago Washington University, St. Louis, um, actually four schools, Union College in Schenectady and uh, Emory. Yes, sir. And I um, I was pretty gung-ho about Emory because by then I knew that if I were there 92 to 96, I was at least going to be there for the Olympics, and I'm an Olympics junkie. And as it turned out, in 92 to 96, I had a Super Bowl, a World Series, and an Olympics. <laughs> awesome. Plus, Delta, Xerox, and Coke all had headquarters there, so I thought it increased the likelihood of employment opportunities, or at very least internship opportunities, because those companies are big enough that if I decided marketing, they all have a big marketing. Correct. If I decided PR, they all had a big PR way. Mm-hmm. Anyway... Without getting too far up my own butthole, <laughs> uh, you know, so my pop may rest in peace. I remember Emory and this, wow, what a great school. Oh, my gosh, if he wants to be a doctor, he could. Emory University Hospital System is brilliant. They're doing these things and so on and so forth. And then my pop calls me. He's like, we need to talk. I said, why? He said, why do they call it Coke U? And I was like, no, that has nothing to do with Scarface, Dad. Coca-Cola. Like, like my dorm is called Dobbs. Like, this Dobbs, right. Cameron, Woodruff. Like, there's nothing nothing to do with cocaine, I promise you, at all. Like, ever. I'm, like, seven up with that, Dad. I never had it, never will. Like, right, no, right, no, no, no. Right. And, uh, but that's so, uh, as anyone in Atlanta knows or has ever gone to the world of Coca-Cola, um, it's a recipe. The actual recipe for Coca-Cola dates back to a Civil War veteran named Doc Pemberton. Mm-hmm. Um, and much like all the great sodas were, right, they were medicine tonics like Dr. Pepper. Right. And Pepsi gets its name because they thought it cured uh, Pepsis or dyspepsia. Mm-hmm. And um, so Coca-Cola had always been sweet with sugar, with sucrose. Right, right. Um, what happened was, and this is what's so cool about doing a show about the 80s. In the 80s, uh, between sugar prices rising, hurricanes decimating huge swaths of the sugar crops in yes, the Caribbean and so on and so forth, even uh, limiting beet sugars that we had at home, Robert Goizueta, who is a chemist, pivots to high fructose corn syrup, realizes he could achieve uh, the same BRICS, B-R-I-X, sweetness level, but spend a fraction of what sucrose costs. So make a cola that tastes the same, just as sweet for a fraction of the price. 
shareholders saw profits like they've never seen. Goizueta gets made CEO. The business school at Emory is named <laughs> after the dude. And um, where I took financial accounting. And man, let me tell you, I was so bad at that class. And, uh, uh, but uh, so that's what Coca-Cola did. And that was um, the first pivot. And then we began to see uh, the uh, the rise of the artificial sweetener, the saccharin. Right. So the, all that is, all that is incorporated in the series, in the storytelling and things like that. You know, some Adam, I'm speaking to Adam Richmond here. Adam, the amazing thing about it, you can you can produce these shows and it's, the, it's who is telling the story. You are a great storyteller, my friend. Thank I want you. to make sure you get that out of this interview. Uh, you're just engaging, man. And I, I, I feel fortunate. You, this is like, you know, I, I interview a lot of people. And, uh-huh. and, and if, my, if my wife was here, she'd tell you, yeah, he watches him. That's the that's <laughs> right Nice. That's Thank her for me. You know, because of the fact that I enjoy you and uh, you're doing something I can never do, but it's entertainment and you do oh, it from an entertainment you. perspective. And, and really interviewing you on this show today allows me to understand you a lot more. Not saying I was confused by you, but you know, your background, your <laughs> intellect, you know, your worldliness, it all shows across on the screen and it comes across as effortless. And so because Thank of that, you. that comes from the person who's comfortable with himself, has been around and done the things that are fun for him. And my big takeaway is, uh, you know, when I look at people in life and I tell people all the time, do what makes you happy. And 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 like I said, I left a, a math degree, an IBM career and wanted to tell jokes, and I've been rolling down that direction all my life. And you have two shows on television now. You can't go wrong with that. Adam eats the 80s. I got my little box. I got it in my cabinet. You know, you know I got my little... I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to tell you something, Adam. I got... I got two Emmys, I got three NAAC Image Awards, and I got this right next to them, okay? That's how much I think of you, <laughs> brother. You. Only thing that I'm missing, only thing I'm missing, Adam, is your autograph. So I'm hoping one day you come through Atlanta, I find out, and it's going to be a, yes. a six-foot black man in a suit back there holding this box and Adam! I need your signature, brother. I need your signature. Listen, you got that no problem. Oh, man, I would, just for the base of an Emmy, what I would do. Just for like one screw on the nameplate. Can hey, I get man, one, little, one gold screw? It's That's coming, man. Want. It's a lifetime my, my, of goodness, brother. On the History Channel, you can catch you. Uh, every Sunday, uh, Adam Eats the 80s and the Food That Built America, hosted by my man, Adam Richmond. Thank you, Adam. We'll be right back with more Money Making Conversations Masterclass with Rashawn McDonald. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald from Money Making Conversations Masterclass with your daily Minute of Inspiration. I sat down with actor, producer, and filmmaker Robert Townsend. He talked about making your pitch and marketing yourself. I understood that there is an audience out there that loves the five heartbeats, so I went to Fathom Events. And I pitched my vision because they haven't done a whole lot of events, you know, surrounding content for Mm African-Americans. And I just kind of looked at a lane and said, hey, I think there's a big audience for this. I did the numbers and broke down my PowerPoint, how many markets, how many times it it, it plays on television. They heard the pitch and they said, wow, we've never done anything like this. Mm -hmm. And then they saw the documentary. And then once I posted one time, I think we got close to a half a million people that were engaged with one. You can listen to this full interview with Robert Townsend. It's available on MoneyMakingConversations.com. Now let's return to Money Making Conversations Masterclass with Rashawn McDonald. My next guest, his name is Benny Pugh. He's a respected entertainment industry veteran of decades of experience propelling the careers of some of the leading superstars. When I say superstars, I don't mince words, including Jay-Z, Rihanna, Kanye West, Travis Scott, Future, DJ Khaled, and 21 Savage. Pugh has left an indelible mark on the music industry holding executive roles at labels like Motown, Def Jam, Epic Records, MCA Records, Rock Nation. That's when he called me and said he was doing Rock Nation. I tried to hook up. Yes, you did Rock Nation, boy? Okay. <laughs> Before ultimately deciding to pivot to, this is why he's on the show, pivoting to entrepreneurship because that's what Money Making Conversation Masterclass is all about. Not getting so much locked in in what you're doing but what you're capable of doing for your own personal dream. Over two years later, Benny Pugh's multi-tiered entertainment company, Diverse Diverse Media, is home to record labels, distribution platforms, publishing, management, and more. Please welcome to Money Making Conversations Masterclass, the CEO, Benny Pugh. 
What's up? How you doing, my friend? <laughs> How you, man? <laughs> well, you know, Benny, it's, uh, first of all, let, let me just tell you why Benny is so special to me. Uh, Steve Harvey and I, he gave us our first uh, record deal Yo. way back in uh, 2000, what, one or two? Man, listen, that was a real story, too, man. Yes. Yeah, you guys, one thing I will say about um, you and Steve is that, you know, there's no secret on why you guys are successful because, you know, I've been in, as I started my career in Motown Records, so I was blessed to mm -hmm. start my introduction into the music business in a black-owned company, right? Right, mm -hmm. which is different. Like mm -hmm. everyone's journey is different, but one thing that I feel blessed was is that you know they made us work hard. Um, you know how it is when we with us, right? Right, mm -hmm. but they mm -hmm. taught me a lot. Mm -hmm. And uh, they wouldn't allow me to fail. Right. Mm -hmm. They made me work and wouldn't allow me to fail. Right. They made me work and wouldn't allow me to fail. Right. <laughs> but when I when I met you and Steve, I saw like you know the the connection and the love and the drive and the determination. And AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second-grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married yeah. at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation <laughs> yeah. that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. We create magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And one thing that you guys always had was foresight and vision, so to see where you both are isn't a surprise to me. Oh, thank you. Because y'all was some tight, <laughs> Top dressed, yo, super clean. I ain't yo, y'all remind me of Jam and Lewis. Hey, y'all remind me like Jimmy. This uh, I'm, I'm not gonna drop. The, I'm not gonna drop none of them no, words. No, no, but I gotta get the people. Oh, I gotta get the people with a little bit about. You know, I hear you all that money making and all that good, good, all that good talk. But they don't know, man. You a real one, and mm -hmm. um, you know what you talk is really what you're about. So. Mm -hmm. I'm so excited to be here and just, you know, be able to um, speak to your audience and that you're extending, you know, an opportunity for the, to do this with you. So appreciate we, you, brother. We know, Benny, um, the, 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 
the ability to communicate has always been your skill set, you know, mm-hmm. which I mean, I've met him in L.A. I've met him in Chicago. I've met him in Las Vegas. I've met him in Atlanta. I've met him in New York City. But it's always consistent. Your tone and your personality has always been consistent. Mm-hmm. Is that intentional or you have a clear understanding that people, what they expect, that you should be delivering that? So it all starts for me, it started at home. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents would never allow us to speak with our head down and eyes down. Never did that. Um, then as, uh, you know, we were being reared, we realized the value of what we say mm-hmm. is what we mean, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, all of those things, we came from a strong Christian background. Like, my mother was a real Christian, not like the fake Christians. Right. But y'all know them, <laughs> them real Bible, you know, them real Bible. Like, I never saw my mother in a pair of jeans or right. pants because mm-hmm. there's a scripture somewhere I haven't found it yet <laughs> in the Bible that women, I don't, and jeans wasn't even around then, but there's a scripture right. that women shouldn't emulate men in any, but you know, I'm sure your audience, them good old Baptist Christian women mm-hmm. and men understand that. And so we grew, we grew up in a, in a very, <laughs> you know, devout household in, in that respect. But I think what what was really important for me in, in identification was the fact that um, I started delivering papers at news, uh, newspapers at 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And what you realize in the lessons that were given in dealing with adults is kind of like now in business managing up. Right. You know, just like when you go to a restaurant, you eat, believe it or not, the server's at a disadvantage. Because mm-hmm. you can always say, I don't like it. Right. You go to the bathroom and leave. Right. <laughs> There's a lot of things that can happen, mm-hmm. but you've already provided the service. Mm-hmm. So at 11 years old, I realized how shifty adults could be. Mm-hmm. You know, I delivered the paper all week in rain, had to get up at six in the morning. Mm-hmm. Collect day. Y'all know when collect day is. You're either never there. Mm-hmm. They give you a little bit. You got to come back later. <laughs> come see me on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Or like, you know what? They disappear for three or four weeks. Mm-hmm. So... At that point, I realized, you know, I wasn't a child anymore because I was dealing with adults. So it's like playing up in basketball, right? Right. Like Mm -hmm. you're a freshman playing with the seniors. So ultimately, I never really dealt with kids my age in that aspect because I was always, you know, dealing with adults. So I learned how to customize myself in situations going up and down. Absolutely. The interesting thing about... uh just having you on the show, we're going to talk a little bit about your book mm-hmm. that's coming out in September. Yes, sir. But, but, and just that note right there, why are you writing a book, Benny Pew? So there's a story behind that. I never had aspirations on doing a book, but on August 31st, I was in a near-death car accident. August 22nd, I took my son to boarding school. He went to uh, IMG in Braden and Florida, and on the 26th of August, a friend of mine called me in the office and he asked me if I wanted to go to a barbecue, and I told him yes. The next day he called me on Wednesday and asked me if I was still coming. That Thursday, he calls me again and asked me if I'm still coming. That Saturday morning, I I took a flight uh, from New Jersey down to... Charlotte, North Carolina, and from Charlotte, I drove to Columbia, South Carolina to visit my sister and my nephews and spend some time with them while they were playing football. My sister and I, we drove from Columbia to Orangeburg to spend some time with my father and celebrate his 70th birthday, and I spent a little time with my mother who has Alzheimer's. My friend calls me again and asks me if we're still coming. On the 31st, I drive from Columbia to Charlotte to take a flight back to New York. It was a misty rain that day, so the flight was delayed. Get on the plane, fly back to New York. I'm about an hour and a half late now. I call my wife and let her know I'm going to be late because the flight was delayed and I had a meeting in New York City in Manhattan. Driving home, my friend calls. He asked me, are you still coming? I said, yes. Call my wife, let her know to get my youngest daughter and let her know that we weren't going to take the convertible because it um, seemed like it wouldn't be safe with this rain. So we take the truck, pick them up. We drive out to rural New Jersey. We're about 20 minutes out. My friend calls me and he asks me again, are we coming? I said, yeah. So finally we get to the house and what I thought was just a barbecue. 
he had actually catered for the two families, so it was really sweet. Four adults, three bottles of wine. He and I, we peel off out of the living room and we go into the deck. His house is 10,000 square feet, so there's a lot of distance. We're sitting on the deck and uh, we're, we're reminiscing. I've known him about 35 years and, you know, talking about the good things, a lot of challenges happening in his life, challenges happening in my life. That misty rain happens again. So I don't know whether he said or I said, well, we both stood up and said, you know what? Let's go take a ride. He just bought a new 550 Benz. So we walked from the deck through the kitchen into the carport, jump in the car, turns on the radio, he backs out, jumps out of the car, walks in the house, gets a cigar, gets back in the house. Now the women and the two kids, they come out. I don't know why black people always want to see people pull off, but that's what we do, right? <laughs> we do that in wave. He backs out drives down his driveway, which is probably the length of a New York City block. We get to the end of the roadway. He opens the gate. It's a two-lane roadway in rural New Jersey. He literally makes a right. And I hear a, and the car just shoots off. So I'd made a call all day, so I pick up my phone, and I cut my eyes and look at the old demo, and the, the car is at 75 miles an hour. So now I cut my eyes, and I turn my whole head, and he's out conscious with his foot on the accelerator. So now from where we started to impact was a half a mile without the car moving forward without a driver. At that point, I did what I was always conditioned to do, what my mother's always taught us to do, was speak to God. And the first thing I said, because I'd seen all of my family, obviously my son, so my sister, my mother, my father, my daughter and my sister standing in the yard, I said, Lord, I guess I'm not going to see my family anymore. The second thing I said to God is, Lord, I guess I'm going to see you soon because now I get a grip on my mortality and you realize, like, this can't end. It can't end good because the car is now without a driver at 90 miles an hour. The third thing I do is I get mad with God, but I'm glad God didn't get mad with me <laughs> because I thought about who's going to pour wisdom into my son at this point. Who's going to marry my two girls? My wife's not prepared for this moment. Who's going to take care of my mother? And most importantly, you know, God, if I'd known I was going to die today, I wouldn't have came to this barbecue. As we start veering off the road, we start clipping trees and bushes. And every time he would um, take his foot off, the car would decelerate. He was out, right? He was out conscious, gone. Foot on the accelerator, car being driven by itself. So at some point we hit something in the middle of the road and the car just shot across um, the, the opposite side of the road and we hit an oak at 90 miles an hour. I sustained a level two concussion, L3, L4 vertebrae fracture, bulging disc in my back. Uh, we hit the tree so hard that it lacerated my liver, which led me to bleed out half the blood in my body. And the force of, of the tree and the belt restraining me um, severed two feet of my small intestine and at that moment God put a book inside of me called On Impact which takes you through my journey from 11 years old delivering newspapers to modern day and Impact is an acronym that stands for Intuition, Mastery, Pivot Authenticity, Connection and Teamwork and at the end of each chapter is a hit list that the reader can apply to themselves and say pretty much, if Benny could do it, I can do it too. And that is what led me to this point in the pivot aspect of moving forward in a different direction in my life. But there's fear tied to that because you had such a successful track mm -hmm. record because that's one of the reasons I do this show is mm -hmm. letting people know fear is a good thing because mm -hmm. unknown is a good thing. And I always tell people we mm -hmm. live a life of being too comfortable. Mm -hmm. And if you live that comfortable life, are you happy with that comfortable life? And when I say that, I'm not talking about just a job. I'm talking about a relationship. I'm talking about where you're living. I'm talking about the car you're driving, the clothes mm -hmm. you're wearing. Are you comfortable walking out that front door? Are you comfortable mm -hmm. sitting at that desk where you're working? If not, then you need to pivot. And when you pivot, there are no guarantees. Mm -hmm. The beauty of your life up mm -hmm. to that point, when you were with your friend driving down the road, everything was normal. You were living mm -hmm. a normal life. Mm -hmm. When you looked over there and saw he was unconscious, 90 miles an hour, those few seconds you had to think, everything was abnormal. Everything was against the trend. And so, but but 
with at that impact, it had to be everything was in slow motion. If I that's how it really it's happens, true. dude. It's it that, really does happen in slow motion. Mm-hmm. And uh, because I, I've been there, you yeah. know, like I was telling you off air. From a, from a life journey, you know, I, I, 1990, my, my lung collapsed. Right. Stayed in hospital 30 days. And I and I was one of those people who thought I could, I was a self-healer. You know, if I got sick, i go play basketball. I just sweat it out of me. Mm-hmm. You know, I never stayed in bed. And then in 2015, that's when I was diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. And when you was talking that same story, it was very relatable to me because what happens is when you are met with tragedy or, or, a, or a decisive moment in your life that you can't control, that's that's the that's the part right there that y'all need to understand. When he was looking over there at his friend, not knowing what was wrong with his friend, he knew that car was driving and he couldn't stop what was happening with it. That's not being in control. And so when they told me I had cancer, I had no control right there. But I had an understanding that what was going on in my life at the time, the people I cared about, the people I wanted to be to be successful. That's why I'm living. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that's why you're living, Benny. Mm-hmm. We, we, that's why it's a blessing to have a family. It carries on. You have a reason to live. And so I was all right. You know, I looked at everything that was happening in my life, the people around me, the people I had touched. I was all right with dying. Not saying I wanted to die, but it did tell me at that point I needed to change my direction. Exactly. And and God finds a way of getting the attention. And what you're talking about is in regards to like the pivot. You know, um, when I look at my journey in, in the music business after mm-hmm. three decades, what people fail to realize, like when I left um, Rock Nation, they're like, how could you leave that job? And well, it's the best thing. Like it was an amazing situation. But have you followed my career? I left every job at the top. Right. Mm -hmm. Because what I'm a believer is not talk about it, be about it. And I left all of those people at starting at Motown to finishing my career in corporate at Rock Nation and Def Jam and Epic and all of these situations. Because as a giver, it's it's about teaching people, giving them the opportunity, showing them how to fish and then let them fish. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so at this point. Even in the current landscape. A lot of the people I taught to fish are now the people that are now in control of the business <laughs> because it's not about me having the best folks with me. It's about me going, helping others to be the best. Right. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing that, then you don't worry. And right. life is good, man. Right. You know, we done did up and down. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we know. <laughs> we don't have mayonnaise sandwiches and Wagyu, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know how to do both, right? <laughs> and sometimes you put a little mayonnaise on Wagyu. <laughs> <laughs> We'll be right back with more Money Making Conversations Masterclass with Rushan McDonald. Now let's return to Money Making Conversations Masterclass with Rushan McDonald. We're talking about here, I want everybody to hear this, but we got to slow it down a little bit. Yes. Because, see, your pivot was tied to a, an accident that nearly killed you. Yes. One of my pivots, because that's not the only pivot. He always told mm-hmm. you he left jobs at top. So mm-hmm. he was pivoting and seeing other opportunities. Mm-hmm. So we're just talking about this one moment and not saying, and we want to let you know that everybody doesn't need to have a life-threatening diagnosis, a life-threatening event to change your direction. When you hear me talk like this, how do you encourage people to step out on fear, step past that fear and step? And, I, and, I, and we always hear this stepping out on faith. I always tell you, if you don't have a plan with that faith, it's going to be a short journey. Talk to us, Benny. So, you know, I think to your point is, is actually seeing the finish line, mm-hmm. right? Um, I wake up every day knowing where I want to be. So whatever comes along the way, I'm comfortable with it. Right. If, you know, if it's uh, if it's a, it's a great day, it's a great day. If it's a bad day, it's a bad day. Because as you know, you're in the moment, yes. right? Right. The past is gone, and you know today is only you know yesterday for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So you got to take the time in order to accomplish what you're doing today and the value of what it is. Because once again, whether I, I never knew before the value of time right. until I walked out of that house and realized in an instant things change. Right. So while I'm in control of what I am in control of, make it matter. Now, the the finish line is how you see the finish happening. Right. And along the way, you stay focused on what it is that you want. Don't don't stray. Mm-hmm. Stay focused on what you want. Mm-hmm. And that's where the accomplishments will come. Because if you wake up every day truly loving what you do, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter how much money you make. Right. Right. It, it doesn't. 
And when you make a lot of money, you know how to make that money work. Yes. Right? Yes. And yes. if you if you just make, because once again, I've been saving money. My mom's taught me how to save since I was five years old. I had um, Christmas clubs. Some mm-hmm. old, For those who are old <laughs> enough to know, Christmas clubs. My mother used mm-hmm. to walk me a mile mm-hmm. to the bank, and we'd put a dollar together mm-hmm. in the bank. So she taught me mm-hmm. how to save money then at five. Mm-hmm. So that's enrooted in me, right, in which I rooted my children and still in my children, which all of us should do, right, because we don't know what the value, right, of what we do and the responsibility of who we are on what we're supposed to do, mm-hmm. right? I think we get s- very sidetracked, and social media is a problem with that, right? Like, it's it's well, about to know, swipe up, swipe down. Well, you know, the thing about, it, you know, millennials were a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, we realize now that millennials just take advantage of technology, Mm-hmm. While people were complaining about technology, millennials saw an opportunity to skip ta- mm-hmm. steps. So technology is tied to that. Mm-hmm. So all you have to do is either join, join the gang, that line, long line of people who want to change, or that very short line of people who are frustrated. And I say short line because a lot of people getting out of that line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yep. So you can look around yep. and go, you, 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 you'll never be by yourself because there's stubborn people mm-hmm. out there who just going to admit, won't admit they, they, are, they, they can change. But the thing that I really I wanted to point out and, and just mm-hmm. hearing you talk and, uh, and, and dealing with it, you know, when we start, we, we've been fortunate to have a lot of famous names in our res- tied to our resume. Mm-hmm. I can go with Robert Townsend, T.N. Mm-hmm. Tamara Maury. I can go with uh, Monique. I can go with uh, Jamie Foxx, uh, mm-hmm. Kevin Hart. Nick Cannon, the list goes on and on. And each one of those people, Steve Harvey, Stephen A. Smith, there's people always say, Rusha, wow, you just, these people have unique skills. Unique skills that separate them and make them special. Make them odd too, <laughs> because they can't work around everybody. They have to be around a certain amount of people. And if you're around them and you don't have that same mindset, they will trample you because mm-hmm. they want to be great. And if you don't understand, if you're hanging out there just to have a good time, you won't be around these people long. Talk about hanging out with those type of people. Um, it's not by chance they're successful. Yes. None of them. The ones that you named, uh, your repertoire you worked with, and equally so, and the ones that I have, they all have that una- unique skill set, and that is determination and drive by any means necessary. They're focused individuals. I mean, you see it. Um, I've been with with uh, individuals that you know that they would be who they are just because of their work ethic. Right, like there is no break time; it's work time, mm-hmm. right? And and ideally, when you're on a dream, mm-hmm. right, and you're on a quest or you have a journey, that's what your focus is. So you need people who buy in and understand exactly where you're going, mm-hmm. and those are who you need around, not naysayers. Mm-hmm. Not hanger-ons, mm-hmm. right? Not people that kill your spirit with, ah, you not going to make it. Right. Let them go, right? <laughs> Let them go. And and ideally, you know, that's what becomes most important is is understanding the company you keep. Music is always key to uh, what we do, and it's tied to everything we do in life. I always tell, uh, you know, our relationship goes back to a, a record deal he brought to Steve mm-hmm. and I a long time ago. And if, and if P. Diddy would have released... The artist that we needed as our first single, mm-hmm. uh, he and I might not be sitting here. Mr. Cheeks. <laughs> yeah. But it's a beautiful thing. So I wanted you to just drop some nuggets about what this book is all about. You talked about how it got started, right. but your impact, man, on how to motivate people and take them to the next level. Let's talk about a couple of keys. Okay. The key to building mentor relationships, because people don't understand, young people understand the value of mentorship. They understand that. But what is really the value of building mental relationships, Benny P? Mentoring changed my life. Uh, as I said, when I started at Motown Records, the woman who actually gave me my first job works for me now, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, once again, you know, life goes through its cycles, and, mm-hmm. and that's what long-term relationships are about, right? People pour into you. You make sure that you're able to give something back when it's time to drink. And, and that's how it works. And, you know, like for me with, with uh, the companies that I've worked for, it's about teach, especially for us as, as minorities and African-Americans and, you know, all folks is, you know, we need a break. We need an opportunity. There's a lot of things we don't know. Right. So instead of making a mistake, like think of it in its most rudimentary basic terms. If you didn't know green means go, yellow means caution, 
and red means stop, you'd always just walk in the street, but there's someone to teach you mm-hmm. and then move you along in, in, in life in that, in that respect. And, and that's what I was able to do with the people that I've um, worked with. I've had some amazing mentors from Deidre Tate, L.A. Reid, um, you know, just to, just to name a few. And um, it's a great resource for those to have an opportunity to be able to ask questions that, you know, you may not feel that confident in asking with those where you can be vulnerable. And that's the importance of, of, of giving people an opportunity to be vulnerable to grow. Because if not, they'll make mistakes. Right. And mistakes that you already have the answers to, why would you do that? Right. 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 So. We know the interesting thing about it, I always talk about, um, you know, because we talked about money early. I would tell people I never go into a relationship thinking about money. Mm. You know, I, I, I think about what I can build and what mm-hmm. value I can create. Because if you create value in any situation, mm-hmm. somebody going to pay you some money. Somebody going to pay you some <laughs> money, man. Somebody going to pay you some money. They're going to pay you. And a lot of people miss that. They come in, this is what I, this is what I want to get paid. And guess what? And then people start judging you based on what they paid you. Now, when you create value, a need, they don't judge it. They know they have to pay to maintain that relationship mm-hmm. or maintain that skill or product that you're delivering on a consistent basis. But you have to be consistent about it. I always remember that when I, when I how I got started in radio was just sitting in the back of the studio watching Steve mm-hmm. Harvey every day. And finally I went, I can do this. Mm-hmm. And I started dropping producer notes, producer mm-hmm. next, you know, I was the executive producer of the morning show. Because I had value and I saw it and I learned my craft. But nobody paid me extra money to get up at 5.30, to go in the studio at 6 o'clock. I could have stayed at home and just collected my my commission check because I got paid on the deal. But you knew where you was going. Yes. And the opportunity was the value. Like there was an op- um when I was at a company, um, it was an interesting point. I had to make a decision on whether I was going to stay at the company that I was at or I was going to take another job and take a six-figure pay cut, right? That's betting. That was probably the first real bet on yourself, right? (laughs) The real bet on yourself. But um, it was an opportunity at this particular company that they never gave outsiders an opportunity to come in. Right. And they were the best. So for me, the value was I want to go learn how they do their business. Right. And that opportunity wound up paying 30x right right? like at the end of the day right that money that i didn't make for that period of time i didn't make it oh i made that over and over and over again because of the education right Right. and realizing following and looking at where i wanted to go and these are steps right Right. it's the tuition that you pay to be yourself right right i I, let me just give you an example of my relationship to that i remember when i was a writer I was on ABC, the show got canceled. Steve Harvey, me and the boys got canceled. And then I went over to uh, Robert Townsend's first show. You know, they, they cut my money in half. I said, cool, I'm working. Mm-hmm. And then they, but they kept my job title. They didn't, the same. Mm-hmm. And so I went to, um, I went to Warner Brothers Studios and I sat down, they said, uh, I said, I just want my job title to be elevated. He said, we can't give you no more money. I said, I'm not asking for no more money. I just want my job title to be elevated. He said, does that mean? I said, yes. Because, see, that's about, you know, like I said, showing value with your name. Because, you know, it's a staff writer, mm-hmm. executive story editor, uh, you know, assistant producer, producer, supervisor. So I was about to miss a step. That guy looked at me. He go, nobody's ever come in here and say they wanted a title but not worried about the money. That small move got to me eventually be co-executive producer of the Jamie Foxx show. If I didn't go in that wow. room and tell this guy, don't worry about the money, just give me the job title, I would have never gotten to be the co-executive producer of the Jamie Foxx show because I would have been the title behind. Correct. I see you. And so that's what we, that, 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 that's my slide over to your, the value of personal branding, right. something you know oh too well, and I want to let somebody know on my side, I did a personal branding move way back then before mm-hmm. branding was, uh, as they say, in vogue today. Everybody mm-hmm. uses it so much, but nobody mm-hmm. knows what it really means. Talk about personal branding, Benny Pugh. So it started for me as a child. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a funny story. Um, my sister Regina and I, and the rest of our family, we grew up in a five-family house. And in the attic is which where our apartment was. And the winters were really cold and the summers were really hot. And what was the chances that my last name being Pew 
that there was a family of skunks that lived in proximity of the house, under the house, and, you know, in a far distance. So when, whether the raccoons or cats or dogs would, would agitate the, the skunks, they would spray. And what would happen is that the scent would go, the draft would pull through the house and come in to our apartment. And me and my sister literally would smell like skunks. Mm-hmm. So we would go to school with the last name Pew, <laughs> smelling like skunks. And kids, as mean as they are, mm-hmm. you know, like children, like they're just nasty. Like, mm-hmm. You know, we can be bad like kids. We all, we bad kids, mm-hmm. right? And realized at that point, you know, it could have been a, a pure negative. I can't change my name, right? Um, and obviously I'm not in control of the circumstances with the skunk. So that was at the point when I decided to brand myself and make sure my name mattered. Right. So that's why I'm always Benny Pew, mm-hmm. not Ben, mm-hmm. <laughs> not Benny. <laughs> I'm Benny Pew because I wanted my name to matter. Right. Because of the, I can say that you know, like I would say, you know, Oprah. I'm not trying to be Oprah because you know, Oprah can top you. You know, if you if you got a bad thing to happen in your life, Oprah got a bad thing to happen in your life. You know what I'm saying? Oh, you were homeless. You know, I was homeless too. Got a friend that cancer. You didn't eat for years. I, I had two friends that cancer. That's Oprah. You know, she had that talk show because you know, because of my name, Rushan. Right. You know, my my father's was really enunciated Russian, mm-hmm. and so I had to make a decision. Is it Russian or Rashawn? And the guy said, pick a name, brother. I was I remember it was 22. He said, pick a name. I say, Rashawn? He said, but don't say it like that. Don't say it like you guessing. <laughs> say Rashawn. Okay, Rashawn. And so same thing there. If you make a decision, ride the decision out. And then don't, if you don't want to be called Chris, your real name is Christopher, say, let people say your real name. Christopher. And that's what people so much and so long in life, they allow other people to define their path. Right. What is the, the thing that really sets you apart as far as defining people with advice? Faith. I mean, it's very clear. Um, you know, what you believe is important because it all starts with, with the beliefs in the Almighty and then belief in yourself. Mm-hmm. It's really important. Um, everything else is secondary mm-hmm. to me. Right? Ultimately, you know, s- someone who's been in, um, some of the worst situations and the best, in some of the best situations, what's been most important is my driving force has been my faith. So that's really wow. it. Simple for me. Right. I always tell people that um, a, a strong belief in what you want to do will be tied to the goals you put in place to achieve your dream. But it all starts with a dream. But a dream cannot be accomplished without goals. The goals you put in action to create next level opportunity. Benny Pugh, thank you for coming on the show, brother. Man, that was good, man. Say that again. Ad lib is what it is. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. We talk to you next Tuesday on Money Making Conversation Masterclass. I'm Rashawn McDonald, and that's been Benny Pugh. Thank you, sir. <laughs> You've been listening to Money Making Conversations Masterclass with Rashawn McDonald. Always remember to lead with your gifts. Money Making Conversations Masterclass is a presentation of 3815 Media Incorporated. You are now tuned into the Money Making Conversations Minute of Inspiration with Rashawn McDonald. Hi, I'm Rashawn McDonald from Money Making Conversations Masterclass with your daily Minute of Inspiration. I sat down with Grammy Award winning singer songwriter Molly Music. He reminisced about being the Minister of Music at his church at 11 years old and not letting his age stop him from what he was called to do. I was a young musician coming in at the shift of a technological era. The churches just before I started playing in church, which was very early, were mostly organ. Mm-hmm. We didn't have an organ in that church, so the keyboard wasn't enough. So I wanted strings. I wanted all these different types of things. So that's what kind of set the tone. It was to please my pastor. It was to be able to show that I was ready for the leadership position that he give, gave me, even though I was so young. Mm-hmm. I anticipated for people to say I was unauthorized and should not be associated with such a position like Minister of Music. So I gave my all to it. I gave my commitment. You can listen to this full interview with Molly Music. It's available on MoneyMakingConversations.com.